Hey, uh, Tom Westcott here. I'm on uh, with uh, Bobby Mack, Johnny Malcolm. Uh, who else we got? A little bit of um, J.L. Reese in the house. And, of course, Mingus the Merciless. So we're, we were just uh, chit-chatting uh, about politics, all that talked about medicine. Now we're talking about Jack the Ripper. Uh, and, of course, as you all know, this is what John Malcolm's second episode of RipperCast and um, the first with me on here. So I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about years and years ago, this little tiny book gets published uh, by John Malcolm. It's got a strange title, strange cover. Uh, no idea what it's going on about. Um, I'm reading about it. Well, I'm reading about it on the internet. Yeah. I was reading about it on the internet. I'm like, what is the purpose for this book existing? I don't know. But people were saying good things about it, so I ordered a copy. And, um, Confessions of a Ripper. I thought, okay, so this is going to be one of those things where he's just talking about himself. Um, but I get it. And the picture of him cracks me up because he's in there what drinking a beer with Queen Victoria, if I remember correctly. It's it's the Queen it's the Queen Mum, actually. I was corrected on that several years ago. Oh the yes, Queen Mum. I've waited yeah. for it to me now. It is the Queen yeah. Mother, yeah. Yeah. And, Queen Mother. And it was the first of like two billion photographs I would see over the years of John Malcolm with a with a beer in his hand. So <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah no if other he's not holding John. a beer, I don't I don't recognize him. But I get this little book. This book was small, like five pages or something. And uh, <laughs> no, it was longer than that. But I get to reading it. I'm just like, holy crap! This is like I was to I was totally not in not. I wouldn't say I was anti Kosminski, but pretty close, pretty close to that. He. Um, and John Malcolm turned that around where I was like, oh, snap, this makes sense. And I thought it was the first really, this was all before Rob, House, Rob House's book. Um, and uh, it was the first real turnaround for me and probably many others. Because the thing about the suspect Kosminski at that time, uh, a lot of us who'd come into Ripperology at a certain era, you know, you had Donald Rumbelow on TV talking about, um, like, oh, well, Kosminski, what a joke. You know, he's walking around eating out of the gutters. This couldn't be the Ripper. And that, that has a big impact, I think, on, you know, how you're going to perceive things moving forward. You're not going to pay much attention to this suspect. Conversely, you had your other crew over here who were just who, to them, the Bibles were um, Martin Fido and Paul Begg from uh, 1987, 88, respectively. Those were their Bibles, and both of these books promoted Robert Anderson as, like, the supreme authority on, on Jack the Ripper. And as you move along in Ripperology, you start to figure out some things. You figure out Robert Anderson. If Robert Anderson talked out of his ass, then that means Kosminski wasn't a suspect and wasn't the Ripper. But that's not true either. So, because he was absolutely a suspect. I still see it on the internet all the time. Kosminski was not a suspect. Well, of course he was. You can't say that. Um, when you have um, Swanson's handwriting saying he, the actual words, he was a suspect, you can't then turn around and say this guy was not a suspect. So he becomes a viable suspect just by virtue of his having existed. But then you also come to terms with Robert Anderson seems to be the only guy who was convinced that he was the Ripper. Other people who would have been privy to the same information he was, such as McNaught, 
were not nearly as impressed because I mean he, he thought Drew was the Ripper and Drew wasn't a particularly impressive suspect, but Kosminski. Uh, so anyway, back to uh, the book. John Malcolm he impressed me in his writings. Um, then the second time he impressed me was uh, when he wrote with what was a casebook examiner. Uh, the article yeah. on he took on like the sacred cow of Ripperology. And that was number one, a ballsy move, which I respect. Uh, but he decides I'm going to write an essay shitting all over, uh, you know, Sugden. And who does that? You know what I mean? And, uh, but of course he didn't actually, that's how people perceive that as, oh, how dare he speak up against, you know, the apostle Philip. And, uh, but what, what he was really doing was just going, okay, guys, reality check. You can, you can have a great book. You can have a great book, a necessary book, an esteemed book, and it can still have errors in it. It can still fall victim to um, author bias. And, and that was, which we need more of those. And, but that's what he did. And I, that influenced some of the stuff I wrote in my second book, Ripper Confidential. So, First of all, his book that he put out, which was like self-published at a time when nobody was doing that, um, and it totally veered off the path of the usual template for Ripper books, which Ripper books then and now still basically follow the template of a chapter on the East End history, followed by a chapter for each of the canonical victims, and you know, with a little bit of a Tabram and Emma Smith thrown in for good measure. Then you talk about the various suspects. Then you go, here's who I think was the Ripper. That's the template of a Ripper book. Um, John Malcolm, you know, wrote his book as though he'd never read these other Ripper books. He said, I'm just, this is what the book I'm putting out. You know, if you don't like it, go kill yourself, whatever. <laughs> but this is how I want it. That was this the subliminal message. <laughs> yeah. Is that the author's dedication? Or? Right. Well, and then the, he's like, I want everyone to know I'm at the pub drinking. Beer and the book reads like he wrote it at that pub while <laughs> drinking that beer, and that's what made it so amazing. And uh, yeah, the the editing shows shows that too. <laughs> but that gave that that's that's part of the reason I got the confidence when I was going to write Bank Holiday Murders. I was like, this is not. I knew I wasn't writing a typical Ripper book, of course. Um, and I thought, you know, I was like, well, is it going to be long enough? Is it? Gonna, I was like, does that? None of that matters. You know, I said like, just. Write, sit down, write what you need to say uh, about this particular topic. Anything else can wait for a later book. And then people, you know, if they don't read it, they don't read it. That's fine. I expected I'd sell 300 copies of, of Bank Holiday Murders. So uh, I wrote it the way I wanted to write it, uh, said what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it, published it all myself. It has sold many thousands of copies, Kindle and paperback, and done extremely well, which blew my mind. And that was, uh, you know, the, the genesis that was influenced um, in large part by Malcolm's work. And then uh, in Ripper Confidential, my second book, um, I take on, you know, I don't take on it. I'm, I'm as respectful as I can be, I think. But... Uh, I, I talk about Paul Begg's book, and particularly Martin Fido's, because that is an immensely... Martin Fido's book is like one book, uh, is immensely influential in Ripperology for so many reasons. And I point out in there, this is, this is not a 
like a resource book. It's not like um, you know the Ultimate Jack the Ripper Companion or A to Z. This is a biased suspect book from beginning to end. Um, but I'm talking. But so many of the things he's put in there that are actually mistakes continue to get repeated by other authors and perpetuate to this day. And uh, and it influences how we think about things. Like in, I I focus on the Goulston Street Graffito because uh, you know Fido it was crucial to his argument that he was making at the time that the Graffito not be written by the Ripper because um, he his preferred suspect he believed would not have been able to write that in English. And therefore, um, it couldn't have been written by the Ripper because the Ripper couldn't have written it in English. That was his argument. He wasn't aware at that time that Sir Robert Anderson himself was convinced the Ripper wrote the graffiti. And because of his that conviction, whoever Robert Anderson's suspect was could have, in fact, graffiti. Uh, the two go hand in hand. So if any of these Kosminski alternate suspects could not have written it, then they, they were not Anderson's suspect, and we can write them off. And that's something I talk about in Ripper Confidential. But nevertheless, his book still stands, and, and, and over 50% of Ripperologists either don't believe in a double event or they don't believe that um, the graffiti was written by the Ripper, predominantly because of the writings of authors like Fido. And uh, Stuart Evans after him, um, and obviously his, his highly influential works. So, uh, boy, did I get segued away from talking about? Yeah, but oh, anyway, no, no, so, that's fine. <laughs> but you know, keep rolling. <laughs> you know, when I read his, uh, it's one of the. If I had to make a list of top ten favorite Ripper essays that I've read in the Ripper journals, and I've read thousands, um, I would say Malcolm would be in that top ten. It would be up there along with uh, some old ones by uh, Gavin Bromley and some other stuff uh, that I've read that knocked my socks off over the years. And I remember he got some flack for that. Uh, he really did. I mean, I don't know how much of it was presented to him on the Internet, but people were like, how dare he? Man, that's, you know, who does he think he is? And I'm like, well, he thinks he's a writer who who uh, had done his research and noticed, you know, author bias. Every book has author bias. You can try to get away from it, but that's impossible. And there's nothing wrong with that, because if I'm writing a book, you're getting my opinion on these things. You can form your own, but uh, you know that's what people buy a book for, so they can have the author <clears> tell them, look, what happened, and here's, here's what I think it means. Why do you suppose uh, that uh, Fido would have um, argued that the, the graffito wasn't written by the Ripper, but, but, then, but then what you were saying you know, about how well it was Anderson's suspect? Um, because uh, John Malcolm last week was saying that that he believes the graffito was written by the Ripper, um, right? And that's and, and that's that. No, but yeah, it's, it's the time. It was 1987. Um, Fido was working on a deadline for his publisher. As we all know, he was, I mean, just working his ass off at the end because he made these new discoveries and had to get them, you know, written up and put in there. But he. A lot of stuff has surfaced since '87, including uh, newspaper articles where Robert Anderson is shown as saying, "Jack the Ripper." He, he's like basically saying it's an ascertained fact that the Ripper wrote the graffiti. Well, that was not known to Fido in 1987. That would have he could have put that in his book, and then he might have argued the graffiti was was written by the Ripper. But to the best of his knowledge, um, 
that wasn't the case, the guy he believed to be the Ripper couldn't have written in English. So that threw the graffiti. He had to throw that out to argue for his suspect. And that's what I meant by it's a suspect book. Because that's what you do when you're writing uh, I Know Who the Ripper Is book. You support, you use evidence that supports that argument and you argue against evidence that doesn't. He promoted Walter Dew to like, uh, in his book, to like a, a key witness when Dew had, you know, was a, God bless him. He was, this guy thought Fanny Mortimer was the best witness in, in the entire Ripper case. That's, that's Walter Dew. He wasn't in Golston Street. He had no idea what he was talking about. Um, whereas if, I go over it in Ripper Confidential. Like, here's what Charles Warren says. Charles Warren believed the Ripper wrote the graffiti, and this is the guy who had it erased. Um, everyone thought it was either possibly by the Ripper or definitely by the Ripper. The vast majority of the lawmen involved, that's what they felt. Um, even uh, Arnold, who was the one who pretty much forced Warren's hand in erasing it, referred to it as a clue. He did so call it a clue. Uh, so yeah, I would say, and that, of course the thing to remember is of course, none of these men were standing around when it was written. So it's, there were only two people who seemed to, who knew if it was written by the Ripper and that was Robert Anderson and Jack the Ripper. Um, um, I know we've talked about this before, Tom, the literacy of the murderer isn't the sole determining factor, whether a Ripperologist would believe or not that the graffiti was written by the killer right, right. I, I picked up on this because i was listening to uh because i had to leave last week's recording early so i was listening today to it and about the um people saying that um it couldn't have been written by someone that well educated because of the grammatical errors was that what the is that what the oh, well the arg the argument's kind of like well um there's i mean there's multiple ways that people would choose to interpret it either either if it was an educated person like a walter sicker or a druid or someone like that they they were purposefully um they were purposefully making it ungrammatical and and full of spelling errors uh to for whatever reason to i i that that line of i Logic I, I don't argue. follow because why would they why would they throw off suspicion, but at the same time essentially make make a declaratory statement about you know. Yeah. The, I I would argue you know in the twentieth in the twentieth twenty first century twentieth century educational standards were much higher for the average person than of the time and you know literacy is now universal. Yet, have you ever read a post on Facebook and the grammatical errors, the spelling errors, you know, sh should of and uh, all that, you know? So I, I don't think that it might necessarily, I, you know, I, I just think that some people, no matter what their level of education, you know, make mistakes like that. It's not necessarily a reflection of, oh, it's an uneducated person or a stupid person or someone pretending to be stupid. It's just... When someone's just grabbing something down, they might not think about it. Well, and, and also and to, to follow up on that, though, like, you know, it, it would have been a, a message if it was written by the Ripper. It would have been written in haste. Yes. Okay? And which which can all we all make mistakes when we do that. And um, we don't know if uh, 
the murderer was also under the influence of any narcotics or alcohol or things That's like that. That's a fact. Or, or even on some kind of a, uh, a high. Right. From the actual act of murder, yes. you know, an adrenaline rush. Right. Well, and he was riding in the dark, let's not forget. Mm. He was huddled in a, in a, in a and, and he was on his, his, he was, haunches are on his knees. He would have been peering around, listening for footsteps. Uh, he had to work quickly. Um, but yes, he wrote it, the message low to the ground. Uh, because, and in quite small letters as well. Right. And, it, you know, it wasn't, you know, here's the thing. I talk about this in Ripper Confidential. When, when people debate the, the writing, the graffiti, they usually debate it based on the merits of the graffiti itself. Um, and one of the things I brought into the discussion were was the apron. The apron was there, too. So if you go back to Mitre, Mitre Square, the Ripper standing over Catherine Eddowes, um, he rem- he's removing her apron, her apron for a reason. What is that reason? And people say, oh, to carry away her organs. But that didn't make any sense because... Uh, he's carried away organs before, and he, and he he didn't need a to tear off an apron. Also, with the kind of apron she had, um, if he wanted to re- remove the whole apron, all he had to do was take his knife and clip a, two strings, and the whole thing comes off her body. Uh, if he wanted a small thing to carry the organs in, she had all of her loose napkins laying around right at his hand. His hand had touched them. He had removed them from her person. He didn't take those. What he did instead, um, well, first of all, he had thrown her aprons up on her body, over her face, um, and cut through the apron, and that's how her nose came off, and that's why the zigzag pattern in the middle of the apron is is cut. Um, But to take the apron itself off, he then had to lower her skirts, take the apron, he had to cut it across the middle, across patches. This took a while, this was not easy. He didn't have scissors, he's using a knife. Why did he have to do that? Why take half an apron? Um, There's only one reason, and that is that apron had to be able to match up to the remaining portion of this apron. Um, There had to be no doubt the apron came from Catherine Eddowes. Um, and that means when he left Mitre Square, he had the intention of returning this apron to authorities for matching. This, in fact, happens under a chalked message. That is a lot to ask of coincidence, because that's the counter-argument to this. If the Ripper didn't write it, it's pure coincidence. The Ripper discarded the apron. It happened to be under the one piece of chalk writing in that area. None others are reported. None others are in the paper, in the police reports. The police accepted the likelihood this was written by the Ripper for a reason. So, if you're going to say it's coincidence, you then have to explain why the Ripper took this portion of apron, went to the, lowered her skirt so that he could cut half an apron off. It was a big piece of material, and I, carry that with him. I I tend to lean towards the possibility that maybe. And I'm not saying this is a definite thing, but my theory on it, which is that he cut himself somehow while mutilating her and then took the piece of apron to kind of staunch the bleeding. Um, that, 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 that's what my um, possible take on it is. I don't know. What, what do you gentlemen feel about the likelihood of that? I, I have an answer for that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that that would explain several things 
it makes more sense, you know, as opposed to something to wipe his knife on or anything. He would need a if he did cut himself, which it, which in a lot of violent knife crimes you you see that's the case in modern times. It happens all the time that that um, you have forensics that discover a murderer not because of the victim's blood, but because of the blood of the the person, the perpetrator, and also too. If you you could square that with um, no murderers happening in October, um, which also I mean this is you, you could blame that on a million things that they uh, stepped up patrols you know, but Hulk. that if if he'd cut himself seriously, especially with his murder hand, that mm. might explain it. And if you want to be really conspiratorial, you add that to the Batty Street laundry incident that occurred the following day where supposedly the person who dropped off this, this bloody shirt had said to Mrs. Kyer, Kuyer, however you pronounce her name, um, that it was a friend's, it was, it was, um, caused by a friend who was cutting his corn. So that could have, I mean, you could tie those things on, you know, you could take every one of those things and, and have other alternate explanations. Mm. Um, but all of those things is, uh, yeah, I, I favor the, uh, the, 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 the theory that the, the murderer cut himself and he needed something to stop the bleeding. And he pro- maybe he, when he walked, he stopped in the doorway. It wasn't necessarily his intention to write the graffiti, but maybe he took this to, off of his hand and to see how bad it was. And especially if, if you believe in the double event, that that the killer knowing that he'd been seen in Burner Street right before that probably was contemplating the fact that he might be all done as a murderer. Um, and then he goes to do what he does with Eddowes, cuts his hand in the process. So his whatever misplaced anger or rage or a mix of emotions, you know, you, you compound that. And maybe while he's sitting there, it's like, you know, this is this is my last statement. This is potentially my last statement. Um, I mean, it's curious that there's there was, wasn't anything written on uh, in Mary Kelly's room or anything like that. Where we had ample opportunity to write it in in t- several different mediums if you want. Other than an F and M on the wall, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think yeah, I think that the possibility that the, the killer cut himself is it, it, to me that's the most that's the most reasonable explanation. <clears throat> but not that you can put many ascribe many reasonable actions by the person who murdered these women and cut them to pieces. So it, it's hard to it's well, hard to reconcile. That is reasonable, um, you know, and and that is, that is reasonable except for PC Long. And and what I mean is. If we believe PC Long was telling the truth about everything he said, then the Ripper did not flee Miter Square, go to Goulston Street, take the apron off his bloody hand, and deposit it. Um, he went somewhere else for quite a long time, re-emerged to go down Goulston Street, deposit the apron, and either write the message or not. Um, I would argue that that argues against the cut hand theory. It's still possible, but... Um, also, if he's cut his hand pretty badly, he then has his knife hand, his right hand, and what we want him to do with this big owie is to sit there and cut the a large portion of apron off. 
way more than he would need to cover his hand when again there's available rags nearby i would presume he would have left the streets uh you know this is a guy who has killed many times prepared for such an inevitability either with gloves or by uh virtue of uh, just bringing his own handkerchiefs or things with him as opposed to taking a large portion of apron to cover just his hand that is possible i can't say it's not possible but then it must have been a pretty severe cut though i mean if if like with the batty street case one could imagine a scenario where if if he cut himself it would have probably had to have occurred when he was committing the facial mutilations, I would imagine. Wouldn't, um, because you, you would think that the cuts on Edo's face would have been the last ones he inflicted. So, so let's say he cut his hand while, and that, that's what, <clears throat> maybe he was trying to rip, rip her face off, like he later was able to do with Mary Kelly. And he slipped and only like and only got the nose and the cheeks injured on her, and then first used his shirt to staunch the bleeding, and then well, realized, oh well, I, I'm going to be wandering around here with a bloody shirt. Um, maybe it just didn't occur to him to find some smaller piece of rag, but uh, except he, ra- he rather cut- than use his shirt, he he cut off a piece as large as the portion of his shirt that. You know, except it seems he cut the apron while cutting her face. So he, the purpose was the cutting of the apron. Um, he, it was thrown over her face, um, and he cut that face, which in, in her skirts we see a cut Z pattern, um, and that would have been at the location the apron was cut. So he was cutting through her skirts. He cut the apron, and he was doing this to injure her face. He wanted to cover her face, and then saw at her face through her clothes her nose gets cut off that's how it gets trapped inside the folds but then he pulls it down nicks her eyelids and continues to cut the apron off and i just and and there's no bloody handprints described or anything anywhere uh there's no bloody handprints uh in goulston street um and it just seems like it was so everything was so intentional and premeditated it, it could be explained by a cut hand but then you have him going somewhere again for 45 minutes and choosing to re-emerge with the apron so maybe he's dressed his hand and he's like i've got to dispose of this apron um or or maybe he went home got the chalk that's possible or his intent in girls in miter square all along was first to write a message over her and when pressed for time he took the apron and fled um and the re- reason that's possible is because you know in the mur- after the murder of Annie Chapman it was rumored there was a second victim and a chalk message was left and he would have read those that in the paper he would have heard that on the street um, and I think he wanted to make that real because so, he liked the idea well what do you think he was doing for those 45 minutes then Tom just wandering the streets kind of no he was alluded. he had to go somewhere he went somewhere mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then waited reemerged uh, oh. and i don't and i think the apron would have had to have been in in his pocket um and he what? may have cut himself like you said I, I i think it's almost inescapable that at some time in in the series he had to have hurt himself it just uh, yeah I, it, I i i i struggled to cut up chicken about you know <laughs> a knife, so, you know. It, it's just like i'm a firm believer and there had to be surviving victims and uh 
you know, that's just, it just seems to me that certain, these things must have happened at some point. But uh, I, me personally, I believe he cut the apron piece off intentionally with the um, idea of leaving it elsewhere to tie the two murders together because Stride was not mutilated. And I think his whole intent was to let the police know I killed both women. So, and, and that's the end of that. And I think that was his whole purpose. It worked. The police believed he killed both women. And that was that. But backing up a second, you said that you think he put her skirts over her face yes. to hide her face while he cut, cut it. Why, why do you think he... What do you think his motivation was for hiding her face while he was mutilating it? Well, what I mean is I think he threw his, her skirts over so he could operate on her down there. Yeah. yeah. But then he made the choice of, of going up to her head, her face, and sawing it, sawing at it through the clothes... And he did this for a little bit, realizing, well, this ain't working. He threw her skirts down. Um, by then, her nose had already come off, and she had that Z pattern that is evident both in her skirts and on her face. Um, and I don't think uh, this has ever been discussed in a book. I don't even think I've mentioned it in a book. But yeah, I think that's when the, the Z pattern was made. It wasn't, um, it was with the skirts over her face, very sharp knife. And then, uh, you know, the apron was exposed again because he had thrown the skirts down. He nicked her eyelids, um, and then he sawed across uh, her apron and took that with him. Uh, that's, I mean, I think that's what had to have happened. Why did he do all these? Who the hell knows? You know, why nick the eyelids? That's so strange. Why didn't he poke her eyes out? Why didn't he poke Kelly's eyes out? Who knows? Um, but I don't think he covered her face because he couldn't stand looking at her. I think that was yeah. just the practicality of it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's that's what I was wondering if there was, you know, um, if it was a case that he didn't want to see her face while doing it, or if it was just a practical thing. It was just practicality, <laughs> and and I think, but but why did he go back and start sawing at the skirt? See, that's to me that's not consistent with someone trying to get something for an injured hand because he sat there and sawed a Z pattern in in her face through her clothes, then threw her clothes down nicked her eyelids, took off the skirt, and and he did other injuries to her. It wasn't just her eyelids. Um, there were some other interesting things done. But then he takes her skirt off, uh, or her apron off, and then he leaves with this big... I mean, that's dangerous, because that's a big old piece of cloth of a dead woman. Um, and it's on his person to wherever he goes, which I assume wasn't that far. And then he stays put for a while, cleans up, Reemerges to where if he stopped by a constable, and he probably was, he didn't look suspicious. The street does how his about, thing and heads off to wherever it is he went to. Uh, I just about, want to briefly. Oh, sorry, oh, I just wanted to jump in on on the, that one interesting point um, uh, because you know I've always felt like why walk around with this huge piece of apron? It's just, especially for a man, it, you know, at night it's drawing attention to yourself and it would probably have blood on it of some sort. Like if he's got bloody hands or whatever, it had blood and feces on it when it was found. Yeah. So yeah. And I mean, that's just sort of a calling card and it's much easier to see in, in let's say that dim Victorian lighting than, uh, than dark clothing and stuff like that. And, and I, he probably realized he had to get rid of it. Whether whether you believe long story or whether you know he goes to Goulston Street right away or not, I mean he still has to get rid of that apron. Well, that's that's what what I wanted to go back to is long, um, and it really it doesn't really make sense that somebody would be wandering around or want to go back out again. Yeah, I I think it's more likely that Long missed it on his first pass because how would he? How else would 
how would he explain that if his beat took him past there the first time and it was there, how he would have to even either admit that he'd missed it. Um, and obviously long was disciplined, um, not too long after this, sort of about a, a year or so later yeah. for being drunk on duty. Yeah. That's um, also why I, I question whether or not the wording that he wrote down, which is the one that I did, I choose yeah. to, you know, that, that seems to be the, the most accepted, whether that in fact was the actual wording. But I, I, I think that long missed it the first time. I, I do too. So, oh, and another reason too is, is long was drafted into, uh, as extra patrols. So it wasn't his usual beat, like some of the other policemen, uh, in the case, um, in, you know, in the crimes. I mean, it wasn't his beat. So it, it would be very easy for him to miss it since he doesn't know the neighborhood that well. But it wasn't just PC Long who missed it. It was um, DC Halls. Both of them missed it. And uh, in PC Long's case, yes, he was drafted in. But he was drafted in for a specific purpose, which was watch out for Jack the Ripper. Well, of course, he wasn't known as the Ripper. Watch out for Leather Apron. Uh, he's watching out for Leather Apron, and he's going to miss a giant chunk of apron in, a, in, <laughs> in an entryway. That was not there the last time he walked. We're not just talking the writing. He's missing a big piece of cloth in a doorway. He has to yeah, walk but he over leather. it. <laughs> and he was well, leather. Yeah, he was drinking a year later, but he was on beat. He was on patrol. Um, he and here's the thing too. It's convenient for us to dismiss that he saw it uh, because then we can argue. Well, it was left right away. The problem is. Uh, doing is we're going, well, this is inconvenient police evidence, and so we're just going to dismiss it. Is it possible he missed? Absolutely. Stuart Evans, who was a cop, I wasn't a cop. Stuart Evans was a cop. He totally believes it's possible that he lied. He didn't miss it. He saw it and then just didn't realize yeah. the significance well, that, of it. That, yeah, that's what, what I lied to save his own ass. And that's how did Long become aware of the murders of that night? Uh, he was still patrolling when he would have heard about Stride. Yeah. Uh, and but DC Halls was absolutely aware, and his eyes were open. He did not but, see that. But it didn't Hulse, and, it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Hulse was that wasn't part of his beat, though. No, Goulson no, it Street. wasn't. But his eyes so, were. He was. He was still looking for stuff. But he was, wouldn't have. He wouldn't have been there until the attention was called to it. So he. Uh, he. He wouldn't have missed it. I don't think. I, to begin well, with, because I don't think he would have been there passed, earlier. He he passed through there if I'm, um, before uh, the apron had been discovered, and he didn't see it. So we've got two people who didn't see it. We also, this is important, I believe, we have residents of the building, none of whom ever had seen this graffiti. Because the argument, if the Ripper didn't write it, is that it had been there for some time. Yeah. Um, none of them had seen it. They had to have seen it, uh, especially if... Everyone who saw it believed it talked about Jews. This is going to register in a in a building occupied pretty much entirely by Jews, and uh, so the the writing was fresh. Um, the apron, according to the cop on on duty, and like I said, uh, I you know you've read if you guys have read my books, you know um, when uh, you know I don't go so easy on individual officers, but I don't attack the police as a whole like Bruce Robbins yeah. or anything like that. And no, and I don't know either you guys, but it it does strike me as like, well, it's convenient for me to be long, but you know, is that necessarily the right? What if he was right? What if it simply was not there? 
we have to deal with the possibility that the Ripper left Mitre Square. And I think it makes sense. If he had a bolt hole nearby, he went there, um, cleaned up, coast is clear. He's back out. Hence, he never caused suspicion. Um, PC Long had probably seen him or someone else and just didn't think of it. Or he was walking with other individuals. But he deposited the apron. He wrote the message. He skedaddled. And I, 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 I would ask a question. But it, I, think, I think it would depend on how clean or tidy the street, the area, the doorway was. Because as I, I think someone will no doubt correct me if I'm wrong, but as you know, it is currently at the time there were street markets and stalls on Goulston Street. So if the area is completely littered with rubbish and every doorway has got random bits of rubbish in, he might have just on his first, you know, an earlier beat just glanced at it and thought it was just another bit of rubbish. And then later on, maybe he you know, took better notice of it, but you know, that's possible. But we're also talking about a large piece of rubbish. Yeah. Huddled up yeah. in the doorway um, that wasn't there. I mean, you, you're 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 not gonna. I just don't think you're gonna miss that. But even if you're not going into the doorway like he's supposed to be doing and looking in, uh, it, just walking by, your eyes gonna go. That wasn't there before. What is that? Just you don't even necessarily. You don't have to think. Uh, if you're a cop, you're not necessarily thinking ripper or crime. But what is that? And he goes and looks at it, and then he sees the chalk message. And then he I'm, walks on his beat. I don't think so. Especially, he, remember, he's looking for a leather. He's looking for a guy with the word apron in his name. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I just, I, 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 all of these things are possible. But that it, it, it requires us to conclude either he was incompetent or lying. I've, I've on that night. On his first night in a new job, when if there's any time his senses are going to be heightened, it's going to be his first night in a new place when he's trying to take it in. He's making note of everything. He's doing his best job. That's even incompetent people do that on their first day. We've all had jobs where we work with incompetent people. They were their least incompetent when they were new, and then they progressively get more incompetent. So I, you know, that's a lot to ask uh, uh, of coincidence in this, especially for those. And I think most of us think the graffiti was written by the Ripper. Over half of Ripperologists believe it was a coincidence, and you you're asking a lot of evidence to arrive at that conclusion. Is is what I say. I think it makes actually more sense if all the evidence, if we take forward, then what we have is a Ripper who uh, killed Stride, went to Mitre Square, killed Eddowes, tore her apron off, took it somewhere, cleaned up, reemerged, deposited it, had a piece of chalk on him. Maybe he had it earlier, but he had it now wrote the message, and did that to tie the two murders together and say, I did them both, and then left. Now, some could argue, well, in the interim, he heard about the Stride murder and wanted to take credit, so he wrote the message. Um, but I think that makes far less sense, um, but, considering <laughs> the two women were murdered almost identically. With, with, with coincidences, you know, you could argue that, oh, well, there weren't murders for three weeks, and then these letters arrived at the Central News Agency, and therefore... And then the murder started again. Therefore, it's too much of a coincidence to say that Jack the Ripper wrote the letters. But coincidences do happen. Um, well, that's not a coincidence. The murders are always timed with the ending of the inquests. Martha Tabram's inquest ended. Next weekend, Polly Nichols dead. Then Annie Chapman. That inquest, Stride Edo's dead. All of that had to do with the inquest. The Dear Boss letter was also 
uh, written at, at the end of the inquest, the PS written right at the end of the last day and then mailed. Um, uh, they say I'm a doctor now, ha ha. So all of that, that's not coincidence. That's just timing with the end of the inquest. But you also have, um, uh, well, let me ask you this to the panel here of Johns and Bobs. <laughs> Who among you believes Stride was not a Ripper victim? I firmly believe she was. I'll answer first. I've always believed her to be a Ripper victim. Mm, yeah. John, John I, I, I believe she's a Ripper victim about... 85% of the time, I'd say yes. Maybe 85-90% of the time. There is a 10-15% of the time where I might think, oh, is she actually? But I, I, I lean towards yes. It's just my, I don't know if I'll call it healthy scepticism or perhaps wandering imagination that uh, briefly takes me away from it. Well, believe it or not, I'm about the same way. I'd say probably 90% of the time I believe she was a Ripper victim. Um, you know, and 90% of the time I believe Eddowes was a Ripper victim. And Kelly, uh, not 100% of the time. The only 100% for me are Nichols and Chapman. Uh, and then the rest are all, you know, 75 to 90% uh, of the time. But weighing it all, you know, because people say, well, Stride was killed much earlier than the other victims. Well, so was Eddowes then. If you take Stride out, Eddowes was killed earlier than the rest. So that tie, that, that's an interesting, that's another coincidence we have to deal with. Yeah. Um, then uh, people say, well, Stride was killed with a different murder weapon. She absolutely was not. There's no evidence of that. Yeah. She was killed yeah, with it, a it, sharp knife. It's incredibly um, difficult even these days to determine murder weapons. So the forensics at the time, they, they didn't have a chance. It's Well, they, didn't, they had one cut to work with. Um, yeah, and, exactly. And it was a... Yeah. It's all we know. We don't know the point or anything of that. Or the, um, and also the the southern, you know, south of Commercial Road and far you know, I, part of the uh, south. Yeah, of the I, other I, I don't buy that. Which I don't buy that either. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like it's one of the ripper now. One, yeah. For 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 me, it's the um, how public the attack was with short Schwartz witnessing it. Yeah, that's what execution, I. Uh, and on a meeting night at the International Working yeah, Men's Association. Yeah, it's, I, I know that you know the, the, the Ripper was a risk taker, um, but something like that, it just doesn't. You know, the the other crimes, he'd go somewhere quiet with the victims, um, even if there were people you know a few feet away. But this attacking someone in the street with people walking down it, it was still a fairly busy street even for that time of night. It, for me, that's where I question it, just because of that. Let's see. Here's the interesting thing. That might also explain why there were no mutilations, why he didn't linger. Is the exact same reason people argue it wasn't likely to be the Ripper could be an argument for why he didn't mutilate her. Um, yeah. He, because if, if Schwartz, uh, and I talk about this in Ripper Confidential, I personally don't think Broad Shoulders Man was her killer. Um, he could have been. He certainly could have been, but I, re I reveal in there, I believe for the first time, that James Brown was actually the last person to see her alive and not Israel Swartz, based on the timing. Israel Swartz falling around 1245, James Brown around 1252 um, puts him the last person to see um, her alive because I... Uh, you know, And I'm saying this for the benefit of people who haven't read that particular essay in Ripper Confidential... Um, the earlier Ripper books and all of that were written from only having the times to work with. I used a lot of papers and I presented all in there for readers to consider. Those James Brown was leaving his house at 1245 
he did not witness Stride at 1245. He had a clock in his home. And he saw the time he left. It took him time to get to the Chandler shop where he says by, he's, what was it? He spent three or four minutes is what he said. I spent three or four minutes in there. And then I leave and I'm crossing back across the street. And that's when I see the man with Stride. This is a game changer because it takes him out of the whole, well, he came along before Swartz or the same time. No, he's minutes later, and he sees a man with stride who um, resembles, the, he didn't get a good look at him, but the overcoat uh, makes him comparable to Pipe Smoking Man. Pipe Smoking Man was seen standing in the exact same spot, in fact. So this changes things to where you have Swartz come along, um, he pulls stride out of the gateway, you talk public, he didn't push her into a dark gateway. He pulls her out into the street, starts yelling epithets. Pipe smoking man is the one who moved out and then chased Swartz away. Um, not broad shoulder man. Pipe smoking man chases Swartz away. Um, Pipe smoking man returns to the scene. Broad shoulders man, who I think is very possibly Morris Eagle, uh, has gone. And he uh, picks her up and is talking to her. And that's when Brown passes by. Eight minutes later, her mutilated body is found in, in the alleyway. That is how I think it went down, based on the timing. It works out great. Um, Israel Schwartz has lended some credence by Fanny Mortimer and others in, the, in his timing. Because there's you know, that argument that Schwartz was a liar. If he was a liar and made the whole thing up, he was an extremely fortunate, extremely fortunate liar. To have witnesses like Fanny Mortimer and James Brown, who in part, uh, you know, corroborated what he when the street was empty, um, and the man standing on the corner wearing the overcoat. These are very fortunate uh, happenstances for a lying witness. But uh, he disappears from the the written record for some reason. I don't know why, but he disappears from the police record in November of 1888. I, for one, don't find reason to disbelieve him. Um, but I didn't possibly disbelieve the popular narrative that has risen since 1976 when Stephen Knight published his account, and we've all decided Broad Shoulder Man was the Ripper. I think that's the least likely of the possibilities, but still a possibility. Yeah, I always think that's possible, but um, it's also possible given how busy the street was that night. We know that from the amount of people that were there that, that she absolutely had time to find somebody else in that street. Or, or hook up with somebody else, or after broad-shouldered man. I mean, it, it, the timing is is fine. It's it's not one of those quiet streets at that time. Well, the street was quiet. Uh, the, the yeah, but there are plenty of men around. There are plenty of people around. And and the the the, the idea of it being look at, the murder was no more or less public than I'd say Hanbury Street in terms of the Ripper's pro, the, the Ripper had a priority. He had to have an exit. In in uh, Bucks Row. He killed on the street, but he had an exit. If someone's coming one way, he runs the other. Um, in Hanbury Street, he goes into the backyard of a house. This was precarious. He had literally one exit. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it, it's and, and he was prepared to defend himself. But, uh, uh, you know, he committed a murder at a time when people were going to be coming down to use the loo in the backyard. He was prepared for that. Um, in Dudfield's yard, you know, it was extremely dark in that. And he had a gate, uh, which I believe he was largely obscured by the gate, and uh, which wouldn't have been able to close flush against the wall due to the gutter. And he, he could hear the people. 
there was one door at the side of the building. If they came out, he'd see them before they could see him, and he'd be out. If someone came in, as may have happened, some people think, with Dean Schutz, uh, he had a door to hide behind um, and a wicker door to walk out of uh, if he needed to. So it wasn't as precarious a spot as one might think in the dark of night, too. Uh, oh, I don't yeah, no, I agree. Not, not the, I, the yard itself, but I think the, the street, if he did attack her in the street, that's a lot more precarious than yeah. the, way the other behavior was seen. Well, you're talking about BS, man, but again, I don't yeah. that we shouldn't assume he, there's this assumption that he had to be her killer and therefore he wasn't the ripper. But then we also look at, uh, you know, uh, backyard of Hanbury Street, um, where uh, Mr. Kadash was listening to a very similar conversation followed by a push against a fence and these sort of things, which are not unlike what Schwartz witnessed in Burner Street. But if Broad Shoulders Man killed Stride, it it is kind of strange that he would pull her out into the street, spin her around, push her down. He may have pushed her down, but he certainly pushed her and she fell. Um, And then he's yelling epithets at people walking nearby, drawing all sorts of attention to himself. Um, that's more reason to, to figure he's probably not either her killer or the ripper, but Morris Eagle returning home from walking his girlfriend, um, who Morris Eagle was described as reacting a certain way when he saw the body of the dead woman in, in the yard. He was, it was perhaps a little more shocked or flushed than the others, and it drew comment. Um, why? Because maybe he'd seen her minutes earlier and had manhandled her, and now she's dead in his yard, and, and they're freaking out. So... Uh, you know, but so he if, couldn't lie. He, he couldn't lie about when he came back because everyone in the house knew he was the last one to enter, and they said he was the last one to come in. You know, within the time frame of of, of Israel Schwartz, uh, could have been twelve forty-five. You know, Schwartz could have been off in his timing. So, um, if broad-shouldered man wasn't Elizabeth Stride's killer, mm-hmm. but then what if Schwartz was Anderson's witness? We then have Schwartz potentially picking someone out who would just attacked Elizabeth Stride and didn't kill her. So if that was Kosminski, Kosminski could have just attacked her and brutalized her and not killed her. So that opens a, a can of worms for what we were discussing earlier with Anderson, really. It's, uh, well, except for if Schwartz wasn't his witness. Um, uh, Lewindy was. And that's why Henry Smith who was writing his memoirs as Anderson's were being published in Blackwood's magazines, got pissed off at what Anderson was saying about the Ripper. And he commented on it and he, he took Anderson to task. And then Smith goes on one witness and one witness only. And that's Lewindy. And he makes a concerted effort to discredit Lewindy as a, as a viable witness. He said he was certainly honest, but he questioned him himself. And that man did not get a view of the killer. So, you know, why is why is Smith going to this trouble? Because he's telling Anderson, your witness is full of shit. Your witness isn't viable. Whoever this guy said was the Ripper, he wouldn't know. Um, and uh, the, uh, so that had, I, I believe, based on what Smith wrote, Lewindy had to be Anderson's witness. The, the witnessing, some people say, oh, well, Anderson made it all up. There was never a, a and no, it happened. It happened for sure. But the witness never did actually identify the man as the Ripper. In fact, he said, that's not the guy. Um, and Anderson concluded, well, but he was, I saw his reaction on his face. Yeah, that was the guy. I don't think Schwartz was that kind. I think Sh- Schwartz uh, 
probably was a possibly an anarchist, certainly affiliate. He was certainly familiar to the Burner Street Club, I believe. Um, possibly had been living at that club the night before the murder, and that may have been why the police didn't give a lot of credence to him, because he does disappear from the written record after November first. As far as any policeman in their memoirs, no one ever references Schwartz again, and I. I would love to know why, because that's the one thing that gives me reason to go, what did they find out about this guy? I mean, even Fanny Mortimer is put up as a major witness by somebody. Um, why not Schwartz? Where, why does he disappear? But he does. And, uh, but at, in, in October, there was no question the police really, they considered him their best lead. Point That best lead became city police witness, Lewindy, who Henry Smith goes to great effort to say uh, was kind of useless as a witness because he didn't see the killer. He he couldn't identify him. And uh, so anyway, there you go. That's my take on it. I, I have another, um, going back to Long, something just uh, popped into my mind a little while ago, um, going back to the Long and whether or not he um, missed the apron the first time. The doorway led to a landing similar to that in um uh gunthorpe street is is if i'm if i'm correct at that what, what if um the killer with the apron wasn't just in the doorway but he was either aware that a policeman was approaching meaning long the first time and he went up the stairs knowing the policemen generally aren't gonna if they look in a doorway they're not gonna climb the landing i don't think that's part of their beats i'm not really sure about that um but what if he was actually there when long passed the first time up the stairs on the landing and then when it was safe when long had passed then he came down knew he had a minute to 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 leave his calling card and then bolt out of there. I mean, that, that's, that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head why that couldn't be a possibility, too, that he, well, actually, he actually could have been that close. I mean, that's the thing. Everything's a possibility. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, uh, and that is a possibility. Yeah. Uh, but with Long, it's like we have a choice. We can either choose to um, believe he was honest but mistaken as many do, believe he was completely dishonest or believe that everything he said is exactly as it happened and that he was he was on the ball that night, it being his first night on the beach, looking well, that, for that, a man named Apron. That, uh, that, that, that would explain, that, that could explain, uh, you know, that could get him off the hook and explain, you know, and it seems to me that that would be just as likely than if he had someplace to go and then come back to leave right. the apron, as opposed to to go is just up the staircase, well, you know, it, just to, to 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 be away. And that that would that would that would pretty much, I would think that would pretty much that would answer that would answer. Well, imagine you're Jack the Ripper, and and you've already have an established pattern of committing murder and getting away with it. Um, you have, I mean, you have a system you work by. And that's that's why he was successful. You know, it, it, luck definitely played a part, but he leveraged that luck in his favor somehow. And I think one of the ways was by not being seen walking the streets with your hands and everything covered in blood, with organs on you. Um, why was he? I mean, because Miter Square is not a great spot 
to spend a, a lot of time murdering and mutilating and taking someone's organs. Um, but he felt comfortable enough to do that there. So he took risk. But how do you minimize your risk? You minimize your risk by when you enter back into the street, you don't look like you've just committed a bloody murder. And you don't linger on the street that long. That's why I think uh, he didn't have a long way to go from Mitre Square to get to a place of privacy and safety. Um, that being the case, I think that that's why that ha that and taken with PC Long, it makes more sense to me. He went somewhere, cleaned up, reemerged with the apron in a somewhere non-visible in a bag or a satchel, who knows, um, and then headed off in the direction of wherever he was going. And I don't know why Goulston Street would necessarily be significant. It may not have been. It may have just been handy on his way. The it was quiet. There was no one about. He, and he said, this is as good a spot as any. Dropped the apron, wrote the message. I mean, it wasn't right across from the Jewish baths. And uh, and then he headed off on, on his way. And the message, you know, the second word, who knows what it says. Uh, I've, I've, to me, that's always the most curious thing, is that no two people saw the same thing in that second word. It was a cloud in the sky. It was, you know... Uh, <clears throat> it, it started with J or, and it ended with S maybe. I don't know. Uh, as you guys might know, I wrote, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it said the International Working Men's Educational Society are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. But that, that's just a possibility. I'm not even saying I believe that. I just think that's a possibility. Um, in any event, I think the purpose of the message was to say, I killed Stride and Eddowes. He didn't sign the message, Jack the Ripper which is interting. Um, and not the same with From Hell, which happened to contain a kidney. If they're written by the same guy, that's an interesting pattern. And they both have intentional, what I believe are intentional misspellings. Um, knife, K-N-I-F, is not a phonetic misspelling of the word knife. So. I think, uh, Tom, I think, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I really like your writing is that you make people think you know, in, in just kind of like like talking to yourself and just saying, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, um, when you come up with things that, that that someone's never heard before, a lot of the stuff, you know, I'm like, well, geez, never thought about that. I never thought about Long being on the landing, um, possibly, until this conversation. So this is this is the healthy speculation that yeah. I think – is 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 really beneficial because you're not you're not i mean we all have opinions i mean i have i have as strong opinions about certain things as anybody um but at the same time there's there's always those times where when you hear something you've just never heard before never considered before and you know leaves the door wide open and that's the kind of thing that 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 we can get stuck on sometimes is that we think we've heard it all before so with the information we have, we feel kind of compelled to come up with what we think is the most likely scenario, and um, you know that's that's kind of a dangerous thing. I mean, we all I, I, I'm definitely guilty of falling into that trap, you know, repeatedly. Um, right. And and, and th this this is yeah this is this is this is the the healthy speculation that that does potentially a lot of a lot of good without without um yeah i mean none of us here have anything to sell we're, you know we're not we're not pushing any 
anything. You know, oh, I mean, no, no. We, we like to. I have uh, Ripper Confidential <laughs> available on Amazon. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. Yeah. I should have said something. I should have said a, a suspect or, or. Yeah, yeah. But. Does the key to the whole case kind of rest in the on the Golsu Street graffito, do you think? I mean, uh, unfortunately, is that the best? I mean, if people talk eyewitness, you know, oh, he looked like this, he looked like this. But from what I, I'm gathering, and even like with Tumble Tea now, people are discussing, um, you know, Tumble Tea's level of literacy. And could he write? Was he illiterate? Some people say, you know, what was his level of you know, uh, uh, literacy and yada, yada. Well, that only uh, could basically um, be relevant when it comes to the Golston Street graffiti. I mean, so... And from hell. From hell. Don't forget, there was a handwriting expert who compared, I think, who said, who concluded that Tumblety had written from hell. Um, from hell, it's like this. I put from hell at 50% possibility of being from the Ripper. That's because of the kidney. Um, I put Goulston Street at being like 75, 80% likely from having been written by Jack the Ripper. But here's the thing. Once you, if you accept that Goulston Street was a written communication from the killer, that absolutely opens the door to other written communications being possible from hell being one of them and, uh, any, some others we may not even be aware of, but that's also why I'm interested in, you know, like I don't have a, a suspect. I don't have someone who I'm like. I'm convinced this guy was the Ripper, but boy, am I still interested in Charles Legrand because, you know, I I, I have you know, pretty pretty good evidence that he wrote from hell. That'll be in an upcoming book, uh, but he may have done so as a, a hoax, um, and because he sent it to his it was sent to his boss. <laughs> this this guy's an inveterate letter writer, uh, later of stalking <clears throat> said boss. Um, and putting a gun to Lusk's face. But that's that's neither here nor there. Um, the bottom line is, I think he did write From Hell, and there's a 50% chance From Hell was written by the Ripper. The only way we'd ever know that is to find the letter, or preferably the kidney, and do a DNA comparison to Edo's. Um, and that'll never happen. So forensics will never solve the Ripper case. And if forensics can't solve it, we'll never know who jack the ripper is uh to a certainty we just simply will not it, it, and, and let me go back to the grand since i brought him up there are plenty of reasons why i don't think he was the ripper too but there are certain things that are interesting um batty street lodger being one of them he was knee deep in that case um being that he was flu fluent in german and was translating on the street he was friends with matthew pack shows up as someone touting the Batty Street witness uh, or Batty Street lodger, all in that same week, we have him, you know, to a virtual certainty, paying Packer to lie about a suspect who conveniently looked nothing like Legrand, and all sorts of things in the name of the vigilance committee that he was doing right after the double event. And strangely, he never shows up in Mitre Square to make any inquiries, but he's living in Burner Street. Um, and then, of course, he does happen to be five foot eleven, and, and given his age is thirty five, um, same as uh, Pipe Man. All very curious, uh, but not evidence, not evidence at all. And then you have Kosminski, Robert Anderson, 
believed two things. He believed Kosminski was the Ripper. He believed the Ripper wrote the Goulston Street. Uh, and uh, in fact, he's the only, he states both as fact, I should point out. Whereas in the case of the Graffito, it's not a fact. It's never been and it never will be a fact that the Ripper wrote that. Because no, no one saw him do it and he didn't confess. Um, so the fact that Robert and, and I believe that was pre Kosminski that he made that statement, but he was adamant the graffiti was a, it was, it was written by the Ripper. Um, that makes me question his veracity because if he's going to put his opinion out there as a fact about the graffiti, why wouldn't he do the same thing about his opinions on who the Ripper was? So that lessens to me the quality of the argument against Kosminski, um, decreases it from fact to personal theory. But that does not remove Kosminski from being a prime suspect. We don't know enough about him to make our own minds up. We just don't know enough about the guy or his puzzle, his dog. We know that everyone likes to make a joke about that. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that I remember seeing where Anderson was that adamant about the graffiti. The only time that I can recall off the top of my head was in response to a, a newspaper. Um, was it Larkin? I can't remember who it was. Somebody wrote, I can't remember off the top of my head, that it was crass stupidity that the, the graffiti was erased and Anderson agreeing with this reporter. Um, he didn't, it, well, they weren't Anderson's words, but he was in, in essence agreeing with the reporter. But I don't recall where Anderson was adamant about, um, about, about his belief in the graffiti. So that's something I ought to know. So <laughs> I definitely would like to be pointed in that direction because mm, I, I, Ripper I, Confidential I, available. Uh, oh, I, you know, Amazon. I've I've read it and I'm looking at it as we speak, and I don't remember that. Maybe I should look it up while we're talking. <laughs> I'm actually doing that right now. I'm gonna. Yes, yeah, so am I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, because... sitting here with copies of Ripper Confidential. Yeah. One of the great things about writing a book is then you don't have to carry all that around in your brain. Uh, so I, I can't quote chapter and verse, um, but I, I know I wrote about it. Let me see here. Hey, uh, Tom, what, what, yeah. why would have Legrand slipped under the radar or, or, or did he, do you believe he didn't slip under the radar? Um, more, more like it. He was like, uh, swept under the rug. As a suspect, I mean, oh, um, well, he was uh, definitely there was at least one cop who was convinced he was Jack the Ripper. Um, oh, God, my memory is so terrible. Was it McNaughton? Legrand as the most desperate criminal he'd ever seen in his life. Um, but uh, at that time, there was a warrant out for him since 1884 under a different name. Um and Legrand had the ability to to be American or French or, or 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 Danish or German, whatever he chose to be, because he was fluent. He also bragged he could um, write in a thousand different handwritings, and uh, and uh, he was a of course a black letter writer um, and a pimp and all these other things. But Joseph Ahrens hired him to be the private detective for the vigilance committee along with his buddy bachelor. <coughs> and I don't know how much Aaron's knew about him, but I don't think Aaron's, I mean, there's Aaron's was the boss of the committee. 
everyone thinks it was Lusk. Lusk was the public face. He was literate, well-spoken, well-respected, and he wasn't a pub owner. Pub owner and write letters to the queen asking for money. So, or the government, you know, no one's going to pay attention to you. So Lusk was made the chairman, but the whole thing was began and end with Joseph Aaron's. Um, and, how, and, oh man, uh, this is too much to get into on Dear Boss about why I believe that Legrand wrote the From Hell letter. But there's um, a bunch of stuff. Uh, interesting, very interesting, I think. Stuff no, but my, points- my question was more like, uh, obviously he would have been known by the authorities. Uh, I think uh, he was. Um, when he was arrested, you know, uh, a few months after Mary Kelly was murdered, I think it was March of 89, uh, he'd been under watch by the police for some time. Uh, he tried to kill a cop. And then he was arrested and served some time, got out. But when he was arrested, he was in the process of planning to blow a woman up. With a bomb, and I thought that was interesting because he wrote threatening letters to that effect, and you can, you know, it could just be talk, except for when they arrested him, he in fact had a bomb in his house. Um, So it suggests he did intend to watch a woman explode, which would be the next logical step after the murder of Mary Kelly. Where do you go from there? Maybe watching a woman explode is the only place you could go, but he was arrested. And um, served time, got out, did more of his criminal shit, got busted, um, and went away for an ex- exponentially long sentence. And, and at that time, a newspaper referred to him as uh, the Ripper something. I can't remember right now, but very curious. They didn't explain why they were calling him the Ripper. And someone wrote a letter and said, I came across Legrand when we were both on the Whitechapel, on the Vigilance Committee hunting the Ripper. And Legrand would follow me around or have people follow follow me around and threaten me and put a gun to my face at one time at my own house. And and he suggests, he said, and Legrand would boast of murder. Um, well, you go back to 1888 and you start looking at the vigilance committee who who was who had reports of being followed around by strange men um george lusk did and that letter the author of that letter did not sign his name but it was very well written um and i believe it was george lusk uh, and because he was in fact followed around and he's writing that letter if you read that letter he's trying not to get sued by legrand but if you read the letter what he's writing between the lines is this man, Jack, you know, Legrand, Jack the Ripper and murder are prominent in that letter. It's like he's saying, I think this guy needs looking. Um, there's no question that Legrand was, um, looked at as being Jack the Ripper. Uh, he was described as the man most likely in London to have been Jack the Ripper and all these things. But there are problems with the idea that he was, and to my mind, there are problems, such as he did not, he knew the East End. There's no question, that's why he was hired to be the Vigilance Committee, is that he had a knowledge of the area. Um, It's also interesting that he would have been been in charge of the patrols. Where Joseph Aaron's pub was, was like a mile or less from Burner Street. So, and they met there at midnight, and they took out or shortly after midnight for their patrols. 
Um, Stride was, you know, of course, murdered an hour later. Um, so I can assume he was, he was within a mile of the murder scene within the hour. That's not evidence. But it's interesting that when a man fitting his, you know, I'm not going to say unique, but um, not uncommon physical description of his height and everything should happen to appear in the street and be the that man, whoever he was, was the last person seen with stride. And then Legrand shows up and starts paying people to lie to the police about the stride murder. Uh, further compounds things. And then he shows up again in the Batty Street case, which I had speculated about in advance of that actually happening. And I said, boy, you know, there's... Why does a guy put his neck out like that? First of all, he had a lot of money. So why even take the job with the vigilance committee? They didn't have much money to pay him. That also puts him... But what that did is that put him in contact with the police because they had meetings with the police. Um, he knew a lot. of then lied to witnesses, passing himself off as a detective as opposed to a PI. It's fishy because he's putting his neck out there because he has a warrant out for his arrest. Why risk yourself? Why risk your neck for so little money when you have a successful brothel over here going on? Uh, you know, in 1887, Legrand wrote letters to uh, the commissioner of police, um, written in red ink, uh, threatening to set fires in the city. And of course, when Nichols was murdered, there were two dock fires that night. He beat a prostitute up in the open street in 1887 and then went to the police to report her for wrongdoing. And he had a habit of doing that. Um, and then he had a habit of paying witnesses to lie for him. And he, he would sometimes get caught, other times would not. He certainly wrote, or was pretending to be Jack the Ripper at one time. So yeah, there's a lot of curious things about this guy. Um, and I'm Going into then that's not the topic of our discussion, but yeah, he's he's someone that uh, uh, you know I'm looking forward to. That's going to be the subject of my third book, but it's not going to be a suspect book, and it's going to be it's tentatively titled "The Infernal Machine: The Untold uh, Story of the Psychopath Who Hunted Jack the River." So, thank you. <laughs> The infernal machine is what they referred his his the bomb he was making. They referred to it as an infernal machine, and uh, so it's going to be about him. It's going to be about uh, the possibility he was the Ripper. It's going to be about the reasons why he may not have been, such as he uh, he didn't live in the East End, and if you read the Bank Holiday Murders. Uh, my my own research uh, puts Jack the Ripper as having been someone associated with um, 18 and 19 George Street in 1887 and the first part of 1888. Um, when four Tom, women what, what was your first reason you went out completely and I didn't hear a word of your first reason? You said something and then he didn't live in the East End. Boy, Mingus, you sound like a girl, dude. <laughs> Where did she pop up from? <laughs> Is that Allegria? I am just the voice in the infernal machine. <laughs> All right. Well, you were my first reason. My first reason for what? You were listing off reasons why he may not have been the Ripper, and the first thing you, the first reason you gave, went out completely. Like you're. Your uh, your connection sort of 
fluttered and I didn't hear okay. a word you said. And then you said something and then you said um, he may not have been the Ripper for reasons like <laughs> he didn't live in the East End and then you went on and I just missed the first part of what you said. The, the, that is actually what he said. Those were his reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charles Legrand um, he, yeah, he didn't live, he knew the East End, but he didn't live there. Uh, he was an outsider to it. Uh, he, um, had money. He had a nice house. He had, he didn't need to butcher women on the open street and run away on foot. He had a, access to, to cabs and I mean, cause that's a lot of risk. And I've always thought Jack the Ripper did that because that's all he had of, you know, that that's how he lived. He lived on the streets. Not on the streets, per se. He didn't have the money to, to go have a private house to go kill women in. You know, so that argues against Legrand. Um, also, of course, some of the witness testimony, like in Hanbury Street with a short man being seen, these things could potentially argue against Legrand. The, uh, um, however, I, I don't know, for some reason, to me, he makes a better Tim's torso. Murder suspect, which might also explain why he wanted to look into the Ripper case because he's like, Who's this bastard showing up? Well, it's, um, it's like we were uh, discussing last week um, when John Malcolm was making, you know, the point that, and I and I agreed with him, and I still do, that, that the Ripper took risks, like we were saying earlier, because he, w- he was stupid, more so because he was cunning or or crafty or anything like that. And I think it was Carl who brought up last week, you know, that Peter Sutcliffe, when he confessed as to why, you know, why he killed one of his victims, he's like, I just saw her walking down the street and up. Why not? Boom. You know, kind of like a, this in that, in how that relates to strike because she was there and I felt the urge well, so, the difference, though, is is Sutcliffe was sloppy. He would just walk up to you with a hammer and start pounding on you, and uh, and that's a that's a terrible, ter- I mean, that's just sloppy. The Ripper was not that bad. The Ripper um, had the means to uh, silence a woman quickly, render her unconscious, and take complete control of the situation. Sutcliffe lacked that uh, for a large extent. Another interesting thing about Legrand is he called himself the French Colonel. This guy was a Dane, but passed himself off successfully as a French Colonel. He ran a brothel house with French women or women who pretended to be French. He would travel um, occasionally to France. He had business there. Um, It's interesting that we we then have a victim who takes a ripper victim with with French pretenses who... uh, happened to be the youngest and a most attractive victim who previously had worked in an unknown brothel house um, and had been with, with a French connection because she had been taken to France by this man and brought back. She stole clothes from this house um, and absconded, and those clothes, if assuming any survived in her possession, were burned in her fire that night. Um you know, so uh, that's another interesting connection is you do have a owns a brothel with young women, attractive women, some French are pretending to be French. He himself pretended to be French. 
Just uh, can, can I go back a second to the Ghost and Graffito and uh, Anderson? Um, for the in case any of you haven't found it, and for the benefit of any listeners who may not own a copy of Rip- Ripper Confidential, copies are available on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> the Daily Chronicle, September first, nineteen oh eight. Anderson gave an interview, uh, and he discussed clues that were destroyed, wiped out absolutely. Clues that might have easily have secured for us proof the identity of the assassin. And uh, he went on and discussed, in another case, there was writing on the wall, a most valuable clue, handwriting that might have been at once recognised as belonging to a certain individual. So, uh, yeah, it does sound like he at least thought it could be a valuable clue and potentially written by the Ripon. You know, it doesn't sound like he wrote it off completely, at least. But it's, 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 it's not the same he, he didn't speak that with the same adamance about adamance no. about his, his uh his his preferred suspect or or yeah or, you know it, it that, that's like, that's what yeah i mean it's it sounds like he's leaving the door open certainly yeah, open may, may have yeah yeah that's that's how that's i, how did, I, I did i see i didn't let me hold on a second here <laughs> I, I i need a i need a copy of the book in front of me but i do have it on the my computer um Let's see here. God, what is the name of that chapter? Uh, it's Goulston Street. Goulston Street. Uh, or the Ghouls of Goulston Street. Just the facts and then some. All right. Let's see here. It was uh, in response to J. Hall Richardson um, in from City <coughs> to Fleet Street about the uh, where he acknowledged the crass stupidity of the clue being wiped out too. Because that's that's what I remember. That's the article. That's that's the article that I couldn't couldn't recall. Well, now, about Anderson, I, you know, I don't think he was leaving the door open because he wrote, "Let's see here." Ah, uh, yes, yeah. I, I, said, I, this is this is me here. I didn't read the next couple of paragraphs, so I think I know what yeah. Tom's going to say. So, yeah. <laughs> the exact words of the mural inscription, which the murderer chalked up on the wall, were: "The Jews are not the men to be blamed for nothing." Um, so when you say the murderer chalked it up, I mean that's just he's uh-huh. like, well, this is you know. And the only tangible piece of evidence obtained pointing to the identity of Jack the Ripper, on and on. So, uh, and then and then and then you see in, uh, Charles Warren in there completely believes Jack the Ripper wrote that message, <coughs> and he's the guy who had it erased. And then you have Arnold referring to it as a clue. Whatever the you know the 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 people who erased it are calling it legit. Then I mean. That's a jumping off point. Now, again, none of these people were witnesses. They don't know. But if the police opinion at the time was that, um, why do so many Ripperologists completely dismiss it? I find that curious. And they invent arguments to do so. Like there was chalk writing everywhere. I'm like, where do you get that from? Because that's not what they say. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think you can use that against Anderson's credibility, though, because that's what he believed, and that's what he said he believed. Well, not his he credibility, was, his veracity. I just veracity—that's the word you used. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. um, he was credible. You can't take away his credibility. He was the assistant no. commissioner of the police. Uh, he was kind of there. I mean, he wasn't really there uh, for most of the murders, but he was there. There. And having said that, though, if this is a guy who um, would, say, take his opinion and turn it into fact and the retelling, then why isn't he going to do that about who the Ripper was? Because he says it was an identity. We know that 
the Ripper's identity was not an ascertained fact. If that were the case, I think other people would have known about that. Smith, um, who was clear that it wasn't. Um, McNaughton, who was clear that it wasn't. Swanson, I don't know what his actual opinion was. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think he's, based on Anderson, the best we can take from it is that Kosminski, although he, uh, obviously it has to be pointed out, he did not name Kosminski. Someone's listening to this going, Tom, you're an idiot. He never named the Kosminski. That was Swanson. The Polish Jew, who was probably Kosminski, based on what Swanson says, was a ripper suspect, um, and the evidence against him was not conclusive. And, and peers, but, and people say, well, the only evidence against him was this witness identification um, that is flawed. And I say, well, clearly that's not the only evidence against him because he was a suspect before the witness was brought to look at him. The witness was brought because he was a suspect. Why he was a suspect, we do not know. Uh, one thing I'd like to add about um, the, the apparent disagreement of the officers and something that's, that I've argued, and it's probably because of my Anderson Kosminski bias, um, is that I do believe Smith was aware. I do believe there there were a number of people aware of this identification. And my argument, which I don't have a lot of backup for, but it's just something that I that I feel pretty strongly about, is that. The main disagreement wasn't about whether or not there was a, a, a consensus among the police. I think the major disagreement was the fact that Anderson was the, the only one to break that code of silence. Um, and I think if you, if you read between the lines when it comes with Smith or McNaughton or anybody else, there, isn't, there, is, there are no direct refutations whatsoever from these men about um, what Anderson said, and that could be for that, that could be for you know several reasons. But at the same time, I think what they did in distancing themselves from what Anderson believed it wasn't because <coughs> they they were outside of the loop, but is it, it's because they were pretty annoyed that this the the inside knowledge that whoever and I, i'm not going to speculate who knew about this identification which i i have no doubt that it happened i mean it's I, to me it's i don't either i have no doubt this, this this identification didn't happen and it would seem incredible if henry smith wasn't involved at some level um and 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 so i think and and mcnaughton if you'll notice in his memoirs doesn't even mention the uh, Anderson's Anderson's writing. This is only four years after Anderson wrote it. So I I suspect, and I I'm you know I, I can change my mind on this, but I suspect that this apparent disagreement and all of these men falling short of actually um, showing, you know, stating that no, no, Anderson didn't know what he was talking about because outside of the the little child letter where where little child says to Sims that Anderson only thought he knew, um, if you you look closely at the way these these men word their um, arguments, like especially Henry Smith, who who is the, was the most vocal, McNaughton generally just ignores Anderson in his memoirs. Um, and we know that, or, or it appears that these men didn't get along particularly well for one reason or another. But um, I, I suspect 
and again, this is this is this is <laughs> this is because I believe Anderson. So you you can see how I can I can twist things in my imagination to kind of fit these things. But I think I think there, there was a number of police that did not commit the indiscretion of letting the cat out of the bag or half out of the bag, which is what Anderson did. And that 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 is my lame explanation as to why it appears there's so much disagreement. Yeah, well, because, no. because on the surface, it, it certainly looks it certainly looks like there um, has to be truth in that. I think you're right. I think uh, what you're saying, there has to be truth in it, because otherwise we would have, I, I suspect, a lot of memoirs coming out with suspects named and full arguments made for their guilt and all of this from all sorts of the, the police officers. And we, we don't have that. Um but uh, and Smith would have certainly have known about the identification. He did know about it, as I mentioned earlier, and I've written in, in my book. I he he takes Anderson to task for his comments about the Polish Jews and all of that, and about them. What he really was pissed off about Smith, and 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 he was writing. He had already written his memoir, and Anderson started getting published in Blackwood. So he's like, "What's this?" And then the the issue with the Ripper stuff comes out, and Smith is like, "Stop the presses on my book! Um, I've got to say some stuff." And he was pissed off that Anderson was suggesting that the Jewish community had withheld the murderer and knew his identity. He dismissed that entirely. But then he, like I said, he goes on to talk about Lewindy, and that this was an honest man who told the truth. But that truth was simply that he would never recognize this man again if he if he saw him in the streets, and yet we, and so he's laughing at he's aware of the identification having taken place. He was the witness, and he puts zero stock in it because it was years later with a witness who had no idea what the man he saw had looked like, and would not recognize him again. Um, that's what Smith is talking about without, but like you said, he's not coming out and saying it all blank, you know, blunt, like Anderson's an idiot and starts telling about their secret identifications. He has written that for a specific audience, that being Anderson and the other police who are aware of the identification. But he, in doing so, if, if you take that, otherwise, if you read what he writes about his witness, it makes no sense otherwise, because he's basically saying, you know, here's the man most likely to have seen Jack the Ripper. He was my witness. He's no good. And and people say Smith was this braggart and blowhard. This is the guy who repeatedly seems to admit embarrassing truths, such as that the Ripper completely evaded him. He is misquoted in Fido and a number of other books, uh, which I talk about in my book. He's He's misquoted about having followed the Ripper into uh, Miller's court or something. He didn't say that. But uh, more importantly, he was aware of the identification, as was Swanson, as was Anderson, and almost certainly McNaughton. Um, at the end of the day, Smith completely dismisses, not Kosminski, but the value of the of Lewindy's testimony, or evidence against Kosminski. Um, McNaughton is unimpressed by all of it and exonerates Kosminski. Um, and then Swanson, who we don't really know what his actual personal 
opinions were other than he endorses the Kosminski as having been a suspect. He endorses that identity or the uh, the uh, seaside home identification having taken place. That this did exist um, to me is absolutely beyond doubt. Uh, otherwise, you have to throw up Swanson, Anderson, and Smith. Um, and as you've seen with the way I treat PC Long, I'm not inclined to just throw all this stuff out just because it's fun or convenient. But uh, having said that, the weakest case against Kosminski is the eyewitness evidence. That is that is so weak. But I would like to know what evidence led to that being even necessary. That's the evidence to me that if we ever figured it out would determine whether or not he was a viable Ripper suspect. I'm confused, Tom, um, because on the one hand, you say, you know, this police official and this police official and all these people believe that the Golston Street graffito was legit and written by the killer. And then you say all these police officials agreed that the identification took place. um, But then you say that you are leaning towards Legrand being a suspect who hasn't been named by any of these police officials not even remotely you he know couldn't be well he, he well, that's what be. i and i kind of tried he to ask them. that's what i was kind of trying to ask you earlier is were, were they all sweeping him under the rug um because of he was the political hot potato well he or, was a political hot potato he worked for the times um, he was, he was, uh, as you know, as did Robert Anderson at the same time and for the same purpose. Um, he had other, you know, he was known to members of parliament. He was paid to stock members of parliament. I'm talking about Legrand. Um, do I believe that he was, uh, that they believed he was the Ripper? No, I, I'm not saying that. I will say without a doubt that they, it was prevented that he was, he was a suspect and that would have been prevented from getting into the press. Um, for seriously political reasons, just by virtue of the fact that he was investigated would have been a problem. And LeGrand had a big mouth. If you accused him of anything you couldn't prove, or even if you could prove it, he would still sue you. And he would shut people up, and he did that all the time. So, uh, yeah, it was he was definitely a political hot potato. He was sent away to prison for... A black blackmailing, but the sentence he got was longer than most people got for murder. Um, he complained about that, and eventually he wrote letters. Um, eventually, was uh, was released early on to be what I think was probably one of the first Ripper tour guides. He he was an early tour guide for the city of London, and I think I suspect that would have had to have been around the East End because um, that's where he had. Uh, career. He was a, a Whitechapel. I think he probably got that on the basis of having hunted the Ripper and having had a knowledge of the East End. So he was probably a crime tour guide. So, and there is an, so like with the McNaughton memoranda? But no, I don't think there was a vast conspiracy. I think uh, um, when Legrand was being investigated, because of his connections to certain people, there would it would have had to have been hush-hush. I do not think they concluded, this man's Jack the Ripper throw him in prison but uh you know that's that's that'd be great for a movie but i i don't know so that, you, that so he would have been ruled out i don't know that he that. i don't think anyone um i think there were a lot of suspects i don't think too many police officers agreed on 
who Jack the Ripper could have been or was. As you know, a number of them were convinced early on the Ripper had to be Jewish. So to them, Legrand wasn't a viable suspect at any point. To other people, he was a, a viable suspect. And um, the policeman who was terrified of him and convinced he was Jack the Ripper ended up going to the same prison Legrand was being held in and suffering the consequences of that. And while in there, informing a, a, a disgraced member of parliament who also went to that prison, he said, there's Jack the Ripper. And he said he's good with a knife, and, and he's the man most likely in all of London to have been Jack the Ripper, and that man was Legrand, you know. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for a suspect who uh, inserts himself into the investigation in intriguing ways and that appear to be him throwing blame off himself. Now, if you don't believe Stride was a Ripper victim, you can say Legrand killed her and her alone, and that's why he did all that stuff uh, that he did in Burner Street. And that may be the case, you know, or there might be another explanation. One of the interesting like, interesting things about Legrand is he would run newspaper ads saying if you're a man uh, who's being targeted for blackmail and you want that problem to go away, hire me. And I thought, well, that's interesting because one of the theories about the Tim's Torso Killer was that these were women who were blackmailing well-to-do men and they were murdered to disguise their identity. Uh, you know, I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, if then here's a guy who's a bona fide sociopath um, running ads talking about getting rid of the women blackmailing you. And he was, in fact, half the time, he was the one actually behind the blackmailing. So that's one way they could pay him to make the problem go away. But, but men would contact him and say, I have this woman blackmailing me. What can you do? Well, there's two things you can do. You can reason with them <laughs> or you can kill them. Whoever the torso killer was had the private houses. They probably, or they almost certainly had um, transportation. Um, they were good with a you know, knife. Uh, Legrand was all of these things. And I don't know. That's uh, something I've thought about over the years. One of the, there's more than one torso killer that had to have been if he was involved. If, if he was part of that, that might explain why he took a keen interest in this Jack the Ripper character and put his neck out with the police to nose his way into the investigation via the Vigilance Committee. Maybe he really wanted to catch Jack the Ripper. <laughs> he really wanted to be that guy and thought because of his special knowledge, being a murderer, he could do it. That the, All these things are speculative and interesting. The one torso victim who is identified, uh, and I'm not Deborah, I'm not the expert here, I think it was Elizabeth Jackson. We don't know much about her, except she had a pimp slash boyfriend named Charlie, which was interesting. What else? Does anyone have anything they, they would like to cover that we haven't talked about yet? So, so it's like uh, I think John Malcolm said earlier, when, when, when Tom gets started, he gives you so much to think about. And, uh, you know, every conversation is littered with stuff. You're thinking, I didn't know that. And then you got to kind of process it all. It's... All the stuff about Legrand, that's, you know, I haven't even written or thought about that since 2010. And, um, you know, and I've written, that was, I've written two books and didn't even talk about him because that has to be a book all its own. There's so much in there. 
and I plan to start writing. I've got a bunch of novels I've got coming out in the next year, and then after that, I'm going to set aside time, and uh, it might be a big deal. I might, it might be a, a, I might go with a major publisher this time instead of self-publishing. I haven't decided that yet, but uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it, and it will uh, be an extremely unique Ripper book. I'll tell you that it'll be one of a kind. And it'll be a, another love or hate thing. People will either love it or they'll hate it. But what I'm not going to do is try and convince people he was the Ripper because my standard of proof has not been met for any suspect, and that includes Legrand. For every reason, I think he, I mean he is a good Ripper suspect, but he's does that mean? But he's not. I'm not convinced he's the Ripper because so much about the case, like the early murders that I believe were committed by the Ripper pre Polly Nichols point to a guy who was in fact residing in the East End. If I found a connection directly linking Legrand to say John McCarthy, they had business dealings, they were friends, that would be a whole new ballgame. But I don't. And if you read the Bank Holiday murders, those early murders all centered around 18 George Street, 18 and 19 George Street. I have zero to link Legrand to George Street. Absolutely nothing. And uh, so therefore... That weakens, in my mind, the case. And he, I don't, he doesn't appear to have been an alcoholic. And I think Jack the Ripper was someone, like Inspector Reed said, who would hang out at a pub and get drunk and be out in the middle of the night. And, you know, he had that liquid courage going. I think that's very possible. That's who the Ripper was. I don't, I don't know that that's the case, but it makes a lot of sense. And that would, again, argue against Legrand. But at the same time, you know, I said earlier, Legrand isn't, you know, he didn't need to murder women in the open street. But this is a guy who had the recent history of, in the middle of a, a thoroughfare, taking his cane and beating the crap out of a prostitute because she dared step into his territory where his women were working. And he beat her ass in the open street and then continued a campaign of terror against this young woman. So that was his nature. That's just who he was. And then he would pay off witnesses or whatnot. He'd pay men to stalk and attack other people, too. Yeah, there you go. So you can't rule him out as, or I can't anyway, yet completely rule him out. But I can't, I would never, I have not seen that one thing that would allow my standard of proof to go up to where I go, aha, I believe this guy was Jack the Ripper. And I don't know that I want that because I think once you have convinced yourself of a suspect's guilt, you cease to have any value as a historian or a ripperologist. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for being on the show today. It was loads of fun. Everyone say thank you, Jonathan. It was it was a pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Pleasure being Great here. Job, Jonathan. Thank you. I feel that Allie kind of dominated the conversation, but before she let she... anyone get a word in. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. She did the oh, same yeah. thing last week too. Yeah, but she, here, she let me best, yeah the let best me the up. best last word the best last word definitely. So <laughs> I think I I nominate Graffito <laughs> wasn't the graffito wasn't written. What was it last week? It was Kosminski wasn't Kosminski was wasn't the wasn't ripper. written by the yeah. ripper. The diary isn't real. <laughs> Etc. Etc. Not Legrand. He's not. It was not Legrand. Yeah.